chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 5 through 10 this morning. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, two easy ways you can find 1 John. Uh, one is just by looking at your table of contents and, and going there. Second, go to the very end of the Bible. Last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And when you get there, just begin to flip pages to your left. And you should find one page that says 3 John, one that says 2nd, and then you'll hit 1 John we're in 1 John chapter 1 this morning. You probably didn't wake up this morning and say to yourself, I could really go for a sermon about sin today. Sermons about sin tend to be as likable as time with an aggressive dental hygienist or sitting next to a faith healer on an international flight. Nobody wants that. And it's probably not what you would expect this morning to be about especially after the events of the past week. I think probably John's audience might have felt the same way whenever they heard this document read for the very first time. We started our study in 1 John last week, and I told you that the primary purpose of this letter is to prepare the church for life after the apostles. But there is conflict that gives rise to the need for a document. There's a conflict that happens in the church that John is caring for. He doesn't speak to that conflict directly until we get to the middle of chapter 2. But just know that as this document lands in the hands of this church, there are people whose hearts and minds and lives uh, are, are under the weight of heavy, heavy conflict and the grief that comes from it. And so here are these people reeling from this conflict, and one of the very first things John speaks to them about in his letter is their own sin. And why is that? I think it's because in times of crisis, we are tempted towards darkness. And John wanted his readers to chart their way through the crisis by first dealing with the sin in their own lives. But John is so good to us because he doesn't just come in swinging a hammer. He gives us hope and forgiveness and joy by pointing us to the God who forgives sin. So I wonder about you. Would you like to sin less? Is there a specific sin in your life that you've had trouble repenting from? You circle back to it over and over. Do you ever feel like you're lacking power or strength to fight against sin in your own life? Well, this passage is precisely for you. Would you say, sin's not really a problem for me, Cody. I'm pretty good right now. Guess what? This passage is precisely for you as well because John identifies the problem we all have and the solution that's offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 5 through 10 was written to us so that we would not sin. It's encouragement to combat our sin by walking in the light of God. Now, I want to show you in this passage three instructions to help us cease from sinning. I don't mean stop altogether in the sense that we'll arrive at holy perfection in this life. I just mean little by little, we sin less and we live our lives more in the way of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. John writes this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. 
If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John gives us in this passage three really clear instructions to help us sin less and to live holier lives. We find strength and we find encouragement and we find a faithful God in these verses. So what are those instructions that are going to help us fight against sin? The first instruction is this, avoid sin by living by God's standard. I'm going to avoid sin altogether by living according to God's standard, according to the Word of God, who teaches me how to think, how to speak, how to act among the people with whom I live. So John opened his letter last week in our study by establishing his authority. Really important matter to make sure that John's audience knows that the message he gives them is the faithful message from God. So last week, first four verses, all about why we should listen to John's message. And then we get to verse 5, and he says, this is the message. We have heard from him and declare to you. Now, wouldn't that statement, it, put, it would put you on the edge of your seat. This is the message. John has hyped us up for four verses. you got to listen. This is what God has given me. Here's the message. All right, John, what is it? Give it to us. We're waiting. What is it? God is light. Not helpful, John. Don't know what that means. Doesn't really click. What are you talking about? What does it mean to say God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him? John uses a very popular metaphor, popular to him anyways. Throughout his writings in his gospel and in these letters, John uses the term often. God is light. refers to God in this way. Now here's what he does not mean. He is not saying that God is physically embodied in rays of light, as if a beam of sunshine, this is God. That is, that's not Christianity, that's some other silly stuff. When he says God is light, he's using a metaphor to describe God in a particular way. When John uses that metaphor throughout his writings, he doesn't use it in the same way. It doesn't always mean the exact same thing. The context in which he gives it helps us understand what John is referring to. Because to say that God is light is to refer to a whole host of things. Uh, He speaks of God being light in his gospel in a different way than he does here. It's not because John's inconsistent. It's just because it's a massive metaphor with all these different connecting points to our understanding of who God is. So what does he mean by it in this letter? When he says God is light and there's no darkness in him, what is he referring to? Well, he is telling us this. When he says God is light, he's telling us that God is the absolute and only moral and ethical standard by which we live our lives. John has ethics, morality, the way we live in mind when he tells us God is light. God sets the standard. God gives us the instructions for how we are to live and speak and think. How do we know that that's what John means here? A little bit later, We just read it. John says that if we walk in darkness, well, we have a broken fellowship with God. So, therefore, there's something about walking in darkness, about living a certain way that 
is disobedience that breaks fellowship with God. So when he says God is light, he's telling us God is the one who tells us how to live, how to speak, how to think, so that we would be in fellowship with him. So it's not meant to be vague or tricky. Just with a little mental muscle, we, we get to this point where we understand when John says God is light, he's telling us God alone defines the moral standard of human life. So how does that keep us from sin? Have you ever done that? you ever been tempted to sin, but you, you put it to rest by saying, God is light, and then all of a sudden you sin no more? Probably not. But there's about, I don't know, a thousand ways the knowledge of God in this way can help us steer away from sin. This message is powerful. The message that God is light is powerful for distancing us from sin. The message is a relief to Christians, first of all, because it settles the, the debate of who we listen to. There are many people who claim moral authority in and around our lives. Which voice is the voice we listen to? Is it the voice of culture? Is it the voice of mama? Is it the voice of what? <laughs> my own voice? But there's a lot of competing voices to the voice of God. But this statement settles the debate for us. If God is light, I want to know what God has to say about how I'm going to live my life. This message is also a litmus test. It's a standard that we can measure other truth claims, other morality claims against. So if someone comes in and says, here's the new way to live the human life, we would take God who is light, who is the standard of all human morality, and we would measure this new message against that message that is from the beginning. God is the one that we side with. He's the one who is light himself. So this is a litmus test to measure other claims against. This message is also a warning, isn't it? If God is light, then that means there is a way we could live in darkness. So to know that God is light might be a word of encouragement and conviction to the wayward Christian to say, hey, come on, come back. You've, you're living in the shadows. It's time to come back to the light of God. But more beautifully, I think this message is an invitation. It's an invitation to dwell daily in the light of God by living in obedience to His Word. I want every day to be in that light, to understand, to hear God's voice, to know how I'm to live. When I'm faced with a dilemma, a choice to make or a way to respond or a sin that I'm tempted to commit, I come to the light of God and I ask Him to give me direction, and He does. You know, there's one unique way in which this message doesn't just help us avoid sin, but I would say it could help the world avoid sin as well. This is the message that God's people take to the nations. Our world dwells in darkness. It does not have light apart from the shared Word of God. And so the message that God is light has to be carried and taken to the places where the name of Christ has not been named. As of today, researchers have identified 17,440 people groups. 17,440 different people groups. Of those 17,000 plus, 7,414 are classified as unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's 42 
0.5% of the world's population that does not know that God is light and there is no darkness in him. They live in the darkness. They are destroyed by the darkness and they need people to carry the light of Christ to them. I've been praying for some time that God would raise up from our church, from South Shore Baptist Church, missionaries who would lay down their lives for the sake of other people across the world. Praying that young people would hear the call of God on their lives. Praying that retirees would hear the call of God on their lives. Praying that everyone in between those two groups would hear the call of God on their lives. And those whom God has called and outfitted for the sake of missions would respond in obedience to that call and go with the gospel to carry the light of God to a very dark world. Because God is light. There's absolutely no darkness in him and the world needs to hear that message and you and I need to live by that message. So we avoid sin by living by God's standard. He's the light who shows us the way. Here's a second instruction for ceasing sin or sinning less in our lives. The second one is this, that we would trust in Christ to cleanse us from sin. Trust in Christ to cleanse us from sin. There's an active trust, a reliance upon Christ crucified that cleanses us from the stain and the penalty of sin. Now, we start with this big profound statement, God is light, but the rest of the passage is made up of five conditional statements. Those statements all begin with the same phrase, if we say, except for the fourth statement, which starts with, if we confess. Still, it's about speech, but just a little bit of a nuance to it. So five conditional statements if we say this thing. Now, I want you to look at the passage with me just so you can maybe get a mental map of what's happening here. Verses 6 and 7 go together. They contrast each other. Verse 6 speaks of walking in darkness, and that's a negative statement. And then verse 7 contrasts that. It speaks of walking in light, and it's a positive statement. Right, look next at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 are also contrasting statements, with verse 8 being, ne- being negative and verse 9 being positive. So verse 8 speaks of denying that we are sinners. That's the negative. Verse 9 speaks of confessing our sin. That's the positive. Then we've got verse 10. Verse 10 is a bit of an echo of verse 8. It's got a bit of a difference to it, and we'll touch on that here in just a moment. Um, but there's what we have. Five statements. Six and seven contrast each other. Eight and nine contrast each other. Ten is along for the ride. Okay? So let's go back to verses six and seven. That's what we're focused on in this section. And in these verses, John teaches us that it's not enough for us to claim to be Christian. We, we have to live like it. Look at what he says in verse six. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. So we learned about the word fellowship last week. Do you remember the, the Greek word for the word fellowship? It's the word koinonia. might be a word that you've heard before. It, it means a deep unity around something that really matters. So if a person says, I have fellowship with God, but they walk in the darkness, John says they're lying. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, this figure of speech refers to the way a person lives and behaves. So to walk in darkness means to live in defiance of God's instruction. To walk in the light, conversely, means allowing God's revealed will to motivate and guide your actions and your decisions. 
So John says that if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't live like it, then you're lying. You're lying to others. You're lying to yourself. He uses another important word at the end of verse 6. He says, you're not practicing the truth. Now, when you and I think about truth, do you think about it as something to be practiced? I, I think normally we think about truth as something to be believed. Right? Here's a set of principles. This is the truth. I believe the truth. There you go. That's the thing. But that's not how John speaks of truth in this passage. For John, truth isn't something just merely to believe. It is something to do, something to practice, something to live. And so if I say I have fellowship with God, but then I walk in darkness, I'm not doing the truth. I could have my theology all right, my doctrine all correct, but if I don't do the truth, I'm walking in darkness. The measure of our Christianity is not the correctness of our doctrine. Though doctrine matters, what we believe is very, very important. But a, a, a doctrinal statement is not what certifies us for eternity. It's trust in Jesus Christ, evidenced by doing the truth, by living in the truth of God. So we're, we're familiar with this sort of duplicity, probably in our own lives and in the lives of of others, this hypocrisy where someone says, I'm a Christian, yet they don't live like it. It's not uncommon for us to be able to, to identify it whenever we see it. And it's always something that's troubling when we recognize it in our own lives or in the lives of others. Truth is embodied in the choices we make and the words we speak. So if I say I'm on a diet while polishing off a bag of Tootsie Rolls, am I really on a diet? Probably not. Uh, if I say I'm a Patriots fan, but I cheer for the Giants, am I really a Patriots fan? No, no, not at all. But if I say I have a relationship with God, but I don't live like it, I've got a real problem on my hands. I've got a real problem in my soul. What does that look like where we live? To say uh, I have fellowship with God and then not live like it? Here's what I think that looks like in our immediate context. Two things. Uh, what I would call cultural Christianity and what I would call ritual Christianity. Cultural Christianity, you're, just, you're born in a society that is majority Christian in some form or fashion. And so if you were filling out a survey about yourself and you had to answer what religion are you, you wouldn't check the Muslim box and you wouldn't check the Hindu box, you would check the Christian box. So just by uh, the fact of your address, where you grow up, maybe a few little... Christian experiences in your life, you would say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I know God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But that's cultural Christianity. That's living in the darkness while claiming to have a fellowship with God that you do not. Similar to that is ritual Christianity. It's where you, you take cultural Christianity and you add to it some of the rituals of religious life. Those look different depending on the tradition you're brought up in. But so many people would try and defend the status of their souls by pointing to religious experiences in their childhood. Or, oh yeah, I've done these few things. And all of that is void of any trust in Jesus Christ. I've got ritual without relationship. I've got sacrament without surrender. These are darkness. It's a dark way to live, to say I have fellowship with God and yet not live like it. But verse 7 gives us the positive alternative to living in the darkness of hypocrisy. Look at it. 
John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. There's some surprising language here in verse 7 as well. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with who? If you had to fill in the blank after reading verse 6, what would you expect verse 7 to say? We would have fellowship with, we would expect to say God. But that's not what John writes. He says we have fellowship with each other. I I think the reason he does that is, is to show how intimately tied is our fellowship with God and our fellowship with the church, our fellowship with each other. I think it's appropriate to recognize that when we truly walk in the light of God, we'll have right relationships with the people in our lives. Marriages find healing when husband and wife both come out of the darkness and walk in the light of God together. Broken friendships are restored when two people walk in the light of God together. If walking in the light of God is a sign of a restored relationship between me, a sinner, and God who is holy, 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 if that relationship can be made right, then there's no relationship that cannot be healed when two people walk in the light of God. Walking in the light gives us fellowship with each other, and it gives us the cleansing of our sin by the blood of Jesus, is what John writes in verse 7. Now, you and I are linear thinkers. We, we, we take phrase after phrase, and we think about them just in a, in a successive line. And so he's told us, walk in the light. We'll have fellowship with each other. Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so what we might think is John's giving us these steps. Okay, first thing I'll do, boom, walk in the light. Second thing, right relationships. Third, now Jesus cleanses me by his blood from all sin. That's not what John's getting at here. He's not giving us this linear succession of thought. Because here's what we find in John's message throughout. We do not enter the light of God apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We do not walk in the light of God according to Following a set of ethical principles, it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, that takes us out of darkness and puts us into light. We walk into light not because we act right first, but because Christ acted right. He laid down His life at the cross for our sin. So there's this initial moment, this first time and forever time entrance into relationship with God, entrance into His light, and then as Christians, we we are forgiven for sin once and for all, but we're not finished sinning in this life. I reject the doctrine of sinless perfection being achievable in this suit of skin. And so along the way, while our sins are forgiven in an eternal sense, in a grand sense, we're still in this battle against sin. But listen to how good Jesus is. His blood continues to cleanse us, continues to cleanse us over and over as we battle against our sin. So when we trust in Him, His blood has washed us and continues to wash us that we would be clean from the penalty and the devastation of our sin. So his death brings us into the light, and then his death continues to clean us and wash us from all sin. We've got to trust in Jesus. Sometimes we we just got to come to him with nothing but all of our sin and just a plea. Jesus, I, 
I need you to help me. Forgive me again. I'm sorry. And when we do that, we find him faithful and we find him forgiving. How do we avoid sin altogether? We avoid it by living in God's standard. We're cleansed from it by trusting in Jesus. The third and final instruction in this passage is confess your sin to our faithful God. How do I battle it? How do I really, really expose the darkness of my sin to the light of God? And how do I step away from it? What John says in verses 8, 9, and 10 is pivotal. We confess our sin to our faithful God. So our final verses here deal with the issue of sin and truth. Verse 8 says this, we have, or we, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Likewise, verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So if, if you're not a follower of Jesus... You need to think deeply about the statements in these verses. Why is it a lie for a person to say, I have no sin? It's a lie because God says you do. And it's a lie because you say you don't need a Savior, but God says you do. Verse 10, if I say I've not sinned, I make God a liar. God has said I'm a sinner in need of salvation. If I say, nope, sorry God, wasted your time didn't need to send your son to the cross, then I make him into a liar. And that's a problem. You see, God's goal in calling you a sinner is not to demean you or to crush you. His goal is to rescue you, to bring you from darkness into light. Unfortunately, what's happened all too often in so many church experiences is churches and Christians and pastors have made it their mission to only tell people they are sinners without also telling them that they are loved by God and that he gave his son to die for your sins. And that stuff does so much damage. And if that's a part of your story, I'm so sorry. Those wounds do not heal quickly. We often go back to them. But verse 9 is meant to heal that wound. I want you to look carefully at what it says. Verse 9 says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to be clear who I'm talking to just right now. This, this is written for the sake of the church, but I'm thinking about it in this very moment from the perspective of, of a person who is not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what we might think. We might think that if we were to confess our sins, God would destroy us. And, and that's why we try to argue our case with God uh, by pointing to religious rituals and self-righteousness. We don't want God to be angry with us. We don't want to fall under His judgment. And so it's kind of like we live with two boxes. We have a sin box. This is the box that carries all of our sin and and then we've got this box. It's all of our good stuff. It's the good deeds we've done. It's the good things we meant to do. It's all the ways we're better than people worse than us. And so, if we were to argue our case to God, we would come to Him and say, I got this sin. I got this good stuff. God, let's, not, let's, just, let's just ignore this, okay? I'm just going to put this back here. And God, surely this is enough for me to find your favor. 
Surely this is enough for me to be forgiven and to be made whole. Just look, I, when I was a kid, I did these religious things, and I meant well, and he, here's, here's my, the things I believe and the things I've done and wanted to do but couldn't. Can't you just look at this? But here's what God does. He, he tells you to pick up both boxes, and then he, he tells you to take the good box, and he says, just throw it in the other one. And at this point, we would think, man, I'm toast. If even my good is sin, what hope is there for me? How, how am I going to argue my case? I've got nothing to defend myself with. All I've got is sin before God. And what does verse 9 say about God? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We hold that sin out to God. We own who we are and what we've done. And how does God respond? In compassion. He loves you. He is bent to save and forgive. That's why he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die on the cross in your place for your sin. And for all the feeble ways you try to argue your case against him, it's all nonsense. Your sin is massive and destructive. But God's love is greater than all of that. Jesus is the only one who could deal with your sin problem. The only one who could set you free from it. So he laid down his life. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise to you is if you will trust in him, he will deliver you from the kingdom of darkness and he will put you in the kingdom of light. He will give you eternal life. He will forgive you now and forever. You will be his child for all eternity. If we confess our sin to him, he's faithful and he's righteous. You've heard people say, you're a sinner and God hates you. The Bible tells you, you're a sinner and God's faithful. He loves you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, today's the day. And if you had questions, I'd love to have a conversation with you after this service is over so that you could know the light of God. But remember that this passage is written to the church. It's written to Christians. And so how do we walk with these verses? Well, they're great for us when, when we're striving to live in holiness rather than in sinfulness. You see, it's all too easy for Christians to deny our sin while calling out the sins of others. Denying our sin is inconsistent with walking in the light. When we walk in the light, our sin is exposed. Walking in the light doesn't mean, according to John, it doesn't mean we've achieved sinless perfection. It means our sin is still being exposed. The light does that work. There's these deep recesses of our hearts and our minds where sin holds tight. And it's only the light of God given to us in His Word that exposes that sin and brings it out. And once again, we're put in a place where we have to confess that and come to our faithful and righteous God. A question that would often come up at this point is, does God only forgive the sin we confess? And the answer is no. If Jesus is your Savior, then your sin has been paid in full and forgiven in full. However, your battle with sin is not over yet. And so the more we walk with Christ, the more we'll be aware of our sin, and the quicker we will confess to our faithful God. 
And so, Christian, you must be vigilant in your ongoing battle with sin. Evaluate your words. Evaluate your thoughts. Measure them against the Word of God. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5 that sin is committed both by the mind and the body. So knowing your sin and confessing it is your way to holiness and joy. Bring your sin to your faithful, righteous, loving God and let Him restore you. So John has written this morning so that we would not sin. That's his goal in this passage. And in this passage, he gives us three instructions to help us cease from that sinning. Do you remember what they are? First of all, we're going to live by God's standard. Second, we're going to trust in the blood of Christ to cleanse us. And third, we're going to confess and find forgiveness in the faithfulness of God. The power for avoiding sin, for ceasing sin, doesn't come from ourselves. It always comes from God. Every place where John gives us instructions to distance ourselves from sin, he gives us the means to do that through trust in God. The power of confession is not in the confessor. The power of confession is in the God who is faithful to forgive the sins of the confessor. And so it's God who's the strong one. It's God who's the mighty one. God who's the rescuing one time and time again for his children who are battling against sin. Now in weeks like this, it's terrifyingly easy to be distracted from our sin while being outraged at the sin that's on display all around us. Satan tempts us with self-righteousness when it seems the rest of the world has lost its mind we would actually stand and call out the sins of sinners while denying the sin that we ourselves carry. It is true that sin is killing our nation. It is also true that I am a contributor. What sin was revealed in your life over this past week? Did you sin with your anger? Did you sin with your fear? Did you sin with your words? In what ways did you walk in darkness? Did you lie to yourself? Did you deny your own sin? Did you make God a liar in some way? What are we to do with all of our sin? Well, we find our example in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus told a story. I want you to listen closely as Jesus tells us how to handle our sin. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, the unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Which of these two characters best describes you? I want to be the tax collector in the story, and I think there are times when I'm there. 
But I also have this raging Pharisee in my heart, and my self-righteousness is dying a slow death. Maybe that's true for you as well. In this story, Jesus instructs us to approach God in humility and to throw ourselves on His mercy, and our sin is met by our compassionate God. The tax collector has nothing but sin to give, a plea for mercy, and God who is faithful and righteous hears his confession and forgives him. And so, Christian, I want to urge you to add introspection and confession to your spiritual disciplines to be practiced on a regular basis. This won't make you a dark and brooding person. The intention is not that you would every day be overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, but that you would live like Psalm 32 verse 1 says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. May you find the joy of the Lord in the forgiveness of your sin and find it today. Let's pray together. I'm going to close with a prayer from Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.